Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. We are your hosts, James and Anthony. In this episode, let's break down good time and uncut gems from the Safdie brothers. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. We are very excited to talk about two of the most exciting young filmmakers coming out of New York City the past decade, the Safdie brothers, with their great early films, Good Time and Uncut Joms. Uncut Joms. Joms. I asked Anthony, we were going to watch it the other night, I'm like, how do you spell Uncut Joms? <laughs> <laughs> They're really great uh, filmmakers. They actually have a lot of short films on the Criterion channel if you want to check them out. Benny and Josh are, Josh are two super talented guys. Benny has become a very good actor. He's been in a, a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. He he was in the Obi-Wan show. He's in Christopher Nolan's upcoming Oppenheimer. So he's becoming a very successful actor. And his performance in Good Time is a real testament to why that's happening for him. But I love them. They're great filmmakers. They have a really unique style. They stay out of the studio system and they make their own stories, which is very uh, unique to New York and certain neighborhoods and, and cultures of New York City, which I really adore. I really like Good Time and Uncut Gems. Obviously, Uncut Gems was a lot more popular, a lot more current. It made 100 mil. 40 million. Oh, 40 mil. 40 million. It was eight. Oh, it was one of eight. <laughs> Get off your jump. I misread that. <laughs> it made $40 million on, uh, I think, $19 million budget. And then Good Time only made $4 million on about a $5 million budget. But that was just a, it wasn't a commercial success, Good Time, but it was a critical success. And you could, and argue, on Netflix, I think it did well. Yeah. So it's just a really well liked movie, critically and from audiences alike. And that got them the funding to be able to make Uncut Joms, which they've been trying to make for about a decade. And just a quick synopsis on both these films. So Good Time follows Connie Nikas, played by Robert Pattinson, a small-time criminal who gets his mentally handicapped brother arrested after his failed bank robbery. Connie then embarks on a twisted odyssey through New York City's underworld to get his brother Nick out of jail. And Nick is played by Ben Safdie. And then Uncut Gems follows New York City jeweler and gambling addict Howard Ratner on his roller coaster life trying to pay off his many debts to various loan sharks, most significantly his brother-in-law. Always looking for the next big bet, Howard thinks he finally hit it big when he discovers a rare uncut opal from Ethiopia with a very interested high-profile buyer. But the closer Howard gets to finally winning big, the more he is forced to realize he can't keep running from the consequences of his actions good time came out in 2017 it was written by ronald bronstein and josh safty directed by josh safty and ben safty imdb it is at a 7.3 with 126,000 reviews ron tomatoes good time is 92 percent critic score 82 percent audience score and then uncut gems came out in 2019 imdb it's at a 7.4 ron tomatoes it is a 91 percent Critic score, audience score is 52% rotten for Uncut Gems and is one of A24's highest grossing films with that $40 million box office. I think I can tell you why the audiences don't really like Uncut Gems. Why? The film is very unique in its approach to the structure of the plot and especially the first act of the film. It is extremely chaotic and the sound design is all over the place and there's really no sense of a, a real plot until the movie gets rolling. But I love that about the film. But I can see why audiences, especially in the first 20 minutes, may, may have become overwhelmed and overstimulated with chaos and anxiety. But that's what the Safdies uh, did on purpose. The film is just 
an anxiety 90-minute anxiety trip and they did it with such absolute like brilliant filmmaking and writing and performances from the actors but i think that that might be why audiences might not have liked the film because of the tone that they created but i think they did it perfectly for me yeah even though um adam sandler gave one of his you know rare dramatic film uh performances because obviously he makes a lot of movies i mean the guy demands he gets 20 million dollars per movie has huge deals with netflix comedic acting icon but he know every few years he puts out a gem of a performance which he's always capable of you know uh, punch drunk love is great he's even great in the myrich stories and then also i mean uncut gems he's he's terrific rain over movie. me he's good yeah so he's yeah. got some great performances he's always capable of these kinds of of acting roles and I love when he does them. You know, he doesn't have to do them constantly. People always ask, why doesn't Adam Sandler do dramatic roles? Because the guy's making bank, having a good time with his friends, making silly movies. I mean, that's what he does. That's what he's always done. And right now, the guy's touring, selling out arenas, doing yeah. music and comedy at the same time, which is incredible. The thing is, you got to understand, he's been doing this for so long. And he's gotten to the point where it's like, he probably cares more about enjoying the process more than he does about, I got to make the best movies possible. He's having, like you said, he's having fun with his friends. He's really enjoying the process of making those movies. He's making a really good amount of money as well. I just think that he chose quality of life over pursuing like super critical acclaimed movies that would be harder to make. I think he cares more about his happiness and his joy of making those movies more than he does about like awards. Yeah, and this was a huge snub for him not getting nominated for Uncut Gems. I thought he was a shoe in Yeah, me too, for at least a nomination. But both of these movies have incredibly strong lead performances. Robert Pattinson in Good Time as Connie Nikas, and then Adam Sandler as Howard uh, Ratner in Uncut Gems. Characters are kind of, they're pretty similar in terms of like the similar, similarities between Good Time and in Uncut Gems, obviously New York City is a main player in both films. It's kind of the heartbeat of both movies and the Safdie Brothers style. New York City is basically another character in both of these films. The backdrop of the stories always takes place here. And, you know, you feel the pulse of that environment, of the people with the, the non-actors that they cast in many roles, just like the Coen brothers do when they make a movie like No Country for Old Men. There's plenty of non-actors in that movie and other movies the Coen brothers make and other filmmakers do to add authenticity. But New York City is such a huge thematic element and just, like I said, another character to both of these films. And also, especially in Uncut Gems, you get the <laughs> Uncut you know, Gems. stuck saying Julia it. Fox ruined that word for me. <laughs> I, I was Josh Shafty's meow <laughs> when he wrote this. <laughs> especially Uncut Gems, you get to see the Jewish subculture of New York City, which I found as a very interesting uh, device in the Uncut Gems script. I really like to see the culture, especially like the songs they sing, the that special dinner they have. Uh, I, I found Passover. that Passover. No, no, but like the uh, okay. the, the ritual they do. Yeah, like, okay. You know what I mean? The prayers. So and, that's that's the cedar plate. That's the reading of the uh -huh. liberation of the Jewish slaves. Uh -huh. That's where the reading off the plagues, which which is part of that story. And then the afikomen, which is that sack that is hidden that's full of money. Okay. And so ever, which, whichever child finds that gets all the money. Gotcha. So those are those those are the things I've never seen in a movie before. And I love seeing things like that. Like every so many movies that's just generally like the same like American culture in a lot of ways. Or like American Jewish culture. Exactly. But to see this, it's very specific and they take you behind the closed behind the closed doors of Jewish families, especially what they do during holidays and religious celebrations. I love that. It's a great flourish in that film. And I, I really adore it. And I love when 
you know, different cultures are really infused into a film so specifically. And that really co comes to the Safdies, their backgrounds, their love for New York City really just pours into it, but also their familiarity with New York City, understanding how to film it on how to photograph it, what kinds of people to cast, because all these side characters, they feel like just real people in the city. They don't feel like actors, like you said earlier, even even the actors they cast, like professional actors, they still feel like they fit whatever subculture or vibe they're going for. Like they have the actor from Captain Phillips. Um, he's in Good Time and he's just great in that role. It's really terrific to see him in it. I love the casting of these films. It is very reminiscent of the Coen brothers. And I love the Safdie's filming style. They do a combination of handheld, a lot of steady cam, a lot of tracking, uh, but with very long lenses. The lenses are most of the time extremely long, like 50 mil up to 90 mil, even higher. And it gives you that great subject in a portrait with the, the kind of blurry background. But they'll do it on like tracking shots. They'll do it on like leading handheld shots, which is kind of hard to pull off. Really complex uh, focusing as well. Um, the, focus, the focus polar on both those movies did a terrific job. I love the aesthetic they created. And then when they go wide, it's really impactful when you get to see the actual – like a full set. But they utilize real locations – uh, real lighting, practical lighting. They f every room feels like a real room. Uh, they're not interested in creating like movie lighting or ambiance. And, and they actually take advantage of a lot of natural environments that they shoot in. They're not shooting in sets. Not, not, I don't believe they built any set for any of the movies, possibly. It seems like they're all real spaces in the world, which I think makes a lot of difference because it limits how you can shoot things. But in a way... It adds to the chaos. They're not building a false wall that they can just remove and throw the entire crew behind. They're just working in a confined space, and they have to figure out how to shoot that. And that's what I think adds to the the realism that they create. They remind me very much. It's like if Martin Scorsese and the Belgian filmmakers, the Dardenne's brothers, like meshed and had a baby, like they would be their babies. The Safdie brothers. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You're thinking of Barkad Abdi, the Oscar-nominated actor yeah. from yeah. Um, from Captain Phillips, who has a role in good time as a security guard at the amusement park there. And the cinematography is really ter terrific in both. If I had to pick a movie that I prefer over the other, you know, we loved like comparing films and obviously people are always going to compare Good Time and Uncut Gems because the first two major films from the Safdie brothers. And even though they're very different, they still have very similarities, but we're putting them together because everyone's going to compare them. Most people, when they talk about one, they talk about the other, they bring up the other and, you know, it's just where they are, where they are at in their career. Personally, I think I prefer Good Time more than Uncut Gems. I think I love the I like the energy more. I think I, although I prefer the characters in Uncut Gems, I think Howard's a terrific character. So isn't everybody else. The better ensemble, you could say, better supporting characters and actors. There's more of them. I think just for me, good time. The pacing, the energy, the the story, the ridiculous nature of this character who's just running amok through New York City on the run. Basically, within the first ten minutes of this movie, he's running from police. He's trying to save his brother from police custody. Spoiler alert. He breaks his brother out of police custody, finds out that it's not his brother. It's some other random guy who's been arrested and is in police custody in an emergency room just trying to right his wrongs. I, I just think I connect better with the story and the filmmaking of Good Time because I think Uncut Gems, they had to kind of pull back from their style a little bit because when you watch Good Time, they are up in your face the whole time with almost every single shot. Lots of close-ups, but it adds so much visceral visceral quality to the, to the filmmaking, to the characters, to the story. They pull the camera back, 
quite a bit in good time with their style, but obviously they're using... You mean uncut? I mean in uncut gems. Obviously, what I say? You said good time. Sorry. In uncut gems, they're pulling the camera back a little more. Less close-ups, less in your face with the characters. But obviously, we have bigger set pieces, larger casts, more uh, crew members, and um, more actors in a scene. And it just feels a little different as well as obviously the same style. But I think... Right now, after watching them both very recently, I prefer Good Time to Uncut Gems. I also forgot to mention that they shoot on film, yes. which, which always looks really stunning. And uh, the gritty nature they capture is really fantastic. I would say I prefer Good Time as well. I think it's because, like you said, it has an emotional connection, unlike Uncut Gems. Uh, and Good Time, you really see the connection Connie has with his brother and the love he has for him. And everything is motivated by, you know, trying to help his brother, even though he is always making the wrong decision and he's poor, he poorly goes about that. And he is very selfish in a lot of ways, but the love between them is uh, kind of an emotional center for the film, whereas Uncut Gems, you don't really have that. Uh, Howard has, uh, he has his, his muse. <laughs> yeah. He has Julia and then he has his family, but he, you don't really see a sense of real love for his family or a sense of real love for Julia. It's more of like, it's all selfish for him. You know, did you notice in that movie, he never responds, I, I love, love you, you back to Julia, not until, until he after hits, he hits. hits the big bed at the yeah. end and she's saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. He's like, I love you, I love you, I love you. Multiple yeah. times she says, I love you to Howard. Yeah. He never says it back. He'll hang up on her after he says it because Howard yeah. is a very selfish person. He, he basically gets what he deserves in this movie. When you're comparing Connie to Howard, they're both crooks. They're both criminals. Connie's more of like a, more of a criminal than Howard. He's just more of this gambling addict who's in debt to so many different people. He he. I guess you could say he kind of is a crook in terms of what he does with yeah. constantly pawning off people's property in order to help try to pay for his debts as well as pay for his gambling addiction. So you could say selling people's property without their permission. I don't know what that constitutes in the in the pawning industry and business and in uh, in these markets and. And jewelry companies, how legal that is, or if it's illegal or not, but it seems illegal. It's got to, it's got to be illegal. It's not his. Like the Celtics ring is not his property to to pawn. So he's pawning a stolen. It's basically he pawned a stolen item in a way. Well, it's not stolen because he was he was giving it to him. But that's like if I if I lent you my if I let you borrow my car and you pawned it. But I wonder if, if it would stand it. up in court because we have a, a collateral agreement. True. Um, I, I suppose if you have something that's collateral, you're not allowed to sell it. it whether it's legal or not, it's yeah. very sketchy and very rude and mean and horrible it's and nasty. Not, it's very uncouth. Yeah, it's uncouth. <laughs> Howard is a very unlikable character. Although the audience, you start to really root for him towards the third act of the film. You're wanting him to win this bet, even though he is destroying every relationship he's ever had. He's destroying his family. He's destroying his his life at home with his kids and his wife. And in addition to, he's related to the biggest loan shark that he owes the most money to. It's his brother-in-law. As well as he's destroying his relationship with Gooey. I think Gooey's his father, where he's, he, he has him pay $190,000 for that. But but the thing with Howard is he can get out of his debts multiple times in this movie. Three times in this movie in Uncut Gems, <laughs> Howard can get out of his debt. So the first time he can get out of his debt. This is crazy. It's unbelievable. I, I made a list. I've, I, when I watch, whenever I watch this movie, I'm always like, oh my God, what are you doing? It's because That's how great the character is. That's These the characters. characters they in both stuck them, to it. They, they have so much it. great depth. That's well, why he's they're a, so he's good. A, okay. He's a perfectly... He's a perfect depiction of a self-destructive human being. Yeah, so Howard was out of his debt 
multiple times in Uncut Gems. He got caught making a bet with the cash that wasn't his because he hit on that bet because he was showing it off in his text message to Aram that he sent the message with the cash. He went to Gary and pulled the bet because he said he was that um, Howard was using his money to yeah. make the bet, even though he would have hit, hit on that hit bet. Huge on that. If he yeah. didn't send that photo to to his brother-in-law saying that he had the cash while he was being tailed, they would have never found out that he put a bet with Gary with the cash that he could have been paying him with. So even though he hit, the bet got pulled. So he was gonna be out of his debt if he just shut his mouth and wasn't showing off the money, even though he's trying to keep him cool. Uh, Kevin Garnett offered him $175,000 in the in jewelry cash. store, in cash, in a plastic bag for the Opal in the first 30 minutes of this movie, which would have gotten him out of all of his major debts. He probably still would be in debt to some people, but his biggest I feel like debt, he would have broken even if he had that money. Close to it, but every one of those dollars would have gone to the multiple loan sharks that he owed money to all over the city. Not just not because... We obviously his biggest debt was one hundred ten thousand dollars to his brother in law, but also those other two jewelers who are constantly running thirty eight k. Yeah, so he owed a lot of people a lot of money, but that would have probably got him off the hook with everything. Turned it down, and then KG outbid Gooey at the auction, offering KG offered one hundred eighty thousand dollars for the opal. Wasn't enough. And Howard, even though he had it in the bag, he had the hundred eighty k. He made profit. He would have made an extra five k on that instead of what he was offered by KG originally. He had Gooey bet up again to $190,000, which means Gooey paid $190,000, was going to get the money back, obviously, but it meant that Howard was now in debt to Gooey $38,000 because of the 20% cut that he was going to have to pay to the Adley's, the auction company. But all three of those situations, Howard would have been out of his debt free. But then you forgot the big one. Oh, yeah, when he, he won. won. When he won big. He won big. And then he took the money. When, well, not when he won big, but when, 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 KG. KG, when KG gave him 175 four, cash. Yeah, so four times he got out of his debt. And the sharks are the sharks are coming. To, they're coming into his store to collect the money. His brother-in-law and his goonies. And what does Howard do? He's like, you know what? He, he like pumped himself up talking to KG. He's like, you know what? We're the same, you and I. And he's And then he just... He hands it to Julia outside the window to make a huge bet at Mohegan's son. He had his problem solved. He had everything. 165000 cash in his hand. And yet he still chose to make that bet. It's just it's just great character and complete commitment to the character. And also, it so many, like every other filmmaker would have, like most other filmmakers would have just written like a happier ending where he solved his problems and they all worked out. But what happens in this film, his problem... Howard is a, he's an addict to gambling. He really is a true addict and it's so it's depicted clearly in those scenes where even when he has it, even when he's on top, even when he has his problem solved, he can't help himself. He needs to bet it again. He needs to make more. Nothing's ever enough. So the thing with this film is and what's great about the story and that character is he would have never had a happy ending. He was going to keep doing this self-destructive behavior until it eventually killed him. He could not help himself. He was never going to change. I think that's the brilliance of it. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. And you know what's ironic is they never explain how he got into $110,000 debt with his brother-in-law 
he's a loan shark, so you can assume maybe it was gambling. But I think it's because he asked him for that loan to get the Opal because remember KG's like, how much did the Opal cost? Come on, be real with me. Like, yeah. how much did that cost? He's like, 100, 100K. He's in debt $110,000. So I'm assuming that he was in a, uh, he got $100,000 from his brother-in-law and maybe he has like a 10% VIG on it. So it's up to $110,000. It's ironic that the, the Opal, which is his saving grace to get out of all of this huge debt, he finally gets it and it's his undoing. It's his death is his obsession with this Opal and wanting to up the ante even more because he did it to himself by purchasing the, the Opal with a loan from his brother-in-law, which he never paid off. So, yeah, that's a great theory. I have a different theory because Arno says to him when he's when they're in the car, he's like, you know how offensive it is to me to know that you've just been placing bets with my money all over town? I think that Arno is referring to like the past several months of Howie betting with all the money he's lent him. And so I think that Howard borrowed money from Arno for betting and gambling. I think that he spent like a tiny amount of money for the Opal. I think that he spent like next to nothing for the Opal, which is why he's so hesitant to tell at KG. And I think that telling KG it cost 100K was a complete lie. That's to make it To make it seem like he wasn't totally ripping KG off. I think that Howard got his hands on that Opal for a really tiny price. It's possible, Because that's yeah. why it was shipped in a fish. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> if he paid 100K for it, like a real price, it would have shipped, been shipped properly. You know what I mean? Well, they had to put it in the fish to hide it from no, but if the it was, mines, but, the people who are in control of the mines. No, I understand. But like, if, but like, but that's what I'm saying. Like, he wouldn't spend, he wouldn't pay these miners 100K. With no guarantee of yeah, an actual he would Opal pay them. He would pay them like probably 1,000. So I think that he paid like, a thousand for the opal because that's a lot of money to those people around the world and then he so and that's what i think and he just owed arno for a long time but what's great about these two films is the the lead characters they have a lot of similarities but they are quite different but they are both self-destructive and what but what's really different is that uh connie is a criminal and howard is he's just a gambling addict uh he's not really committing crimes per se but connie He'll rob a bank without hesitation. You know, he'll he'll do whatever he can to get what he wants or to save his brother. He's happy to break the law. He he'll he like he framed the security guard for their crimes. You know, what I mean, he did that without even thinking second, like having second thoughts about that. So that's a, the major difference between these two characters. Yes, they're both self-destructive, but Connie is more. He is the straight. He's a straight criminal. You know, what I mean, he he is a bad dude. And both of them, they don't really have much of a conscience or a moral compass. But Connie, of course, you can tell, actually cares about his brother, even though he. You could argue abandons his brother when they're getting chased by the police. It's hard to tell whether he abandoned him on purpose or was just running ahead of him and got too out, like was just too caught up in the moment. And like we never see when he looks behind and sees his brother isn't there. He just keeps running. He leaves his brother at the mall to get arrested. So, but he spends the rest of the film trying to rescue his brother from police custody. First, he tries to go through the bail bonds, which actually that character was a real bondsman, bonds guy. You can tell just the way those characters talk. And obviously they have a great, they have an Oscar winner, Jennifer Jason Lee there as well. But it's amazing to have like an Oscar winner acting opposite like an actual bondsman. What did she, what did she win for? Hey, for late. She was nominated. She didn't oh, she was nominated? Yeah, oh, she, she sorry. Didn't, she didn't win. It's all good. Okay. That's why I'm here, man. I thought uh, she, I'm, I'm going to have to double check. So, so actually, yeah, go ahead. Eric Roberts was originally, he actually originally played. Oh, from Dark Knight? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he originally played the Bale Bondsman. He's an Oscar nominee as well. Um, but they reshot the scene and, and recast it with an actual bondsman, Eric 
pay Kurt. Pay Kurt have been a bondsman for the last 20 years, and he actually owns the office used in Queens with his wife, Astrid Corrales. Initially, he was asked only for the use of the office space. Eventually, the Safties asked Pay Kurt and his wife to actually play the roles, and they reshot the entire scene with him in the role of the bondsman instead of Eric Roberts. Uh, Oscar nominee, you're right. Yeah. So I suppose if you have, I mean, the thing is, you already have one of the biggest stars alive in the in the movie. That already sells you. That sells the audience. You know what I mean? And I suppose with a film like this and with the the style in which the Safety brothers film and the way their tone works with their storytelling, you don't want recognizable faces in roles because then the actors really work. And so I suppose it makes sense is to limit the number of faces an audience would recognize and things like this. Not to mention Robert Pattinson's almost unrecognizable in this role as Connie with the hair, the facial hair. I mean, he's very gaunt in this film. He's a skinny guy, but he's especially gaunt in this movie as Connie. The goatee. Yeah, the goatee especially. Really changes his face. And he went really into character in this film and like before production, he was like living in this like basement apartment, eating nothing but tuna fish. The Safety brothers came and checked it out. I don't know if this is one of those lies that Robert Pattinson (laughs) tells, but I read read an interview about it where he said that like he was living in this basement an apartment <laughs> just for like weeks getting into character for for connie they also did a lot of improvisation with this script all the actors didn't read the script or were given a detailed backstory of their characters and were told to improvise every scene while robert pattinson and benny safty actually had scripts but were still told to react to the others as well as they couldn't could in terms of seeming like it's all improvised which is really interesting and pattinson he actually approached the safty brothers to work together on a project after he stumbled upon a poster for their movie, Heaven Knows What, starring Ariel Holmes, who is a former street junkie and the the movie's based on her personal experiences. He just saw a poster for that movie. It's very interesting. It's like a sideways, horizontal poster, neon pink. And he reached out to the Safdie brothers, interested in working together on something. And the Safdie brothers, they were trying to get Uncut Gems made, but they're like, all right, this is Robert Pattinson. He seems like a cool guy, seems really motivated to work on something. And then they started writing Good Time for Robert Pattinson to star in. That's amazing. The Safdies also, um, especially Josh, have a lot of work in documentaries as well. They actually, Josh actually made a documentary in the 2010s, um, as well as other documentary uh, shorts, but also feature length ones too. So they were, it's not like this was their, this is obviously their breakout, but they were making films in some capacity for a decade before this came out. Yeah, Daddy Long Legs. Yeah, and lots of shorts. This is a great short where Benny plays a street performer, like one of those people who pretend to be like a gold statue. He, and it's it's amazing. And uh, they they're just really talented guys, but they've all their style is just so naturalistic and so um, European. Uh, the handheld nature of it, I really love it. But also, so with Pattinson. I, I read in an interview, I saw an interview with him where he said he approached the Safties, but also he approached Robert Eggers as well around the same time because he liked the witch. And he said to Eggers, give me just like, just give me something that's like as weird as you can. He just, he's like, whatever the weirdest thing you have is just send it to me and I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> so I'm sure he said the same thing to Safties to just, he just wants to stretch his acting chops and, and push himself as an actor which he's always done since Twilight in a lot of ways. If you see his his work outside of studio pictures, it's really fantastic. And one of his best ones, uh, which not many people have seen, is Lost City of Z. Uh, he's amazing in that role. Really, really fantastic. High Life, he's excellent. Yeah, High in Life as well. is so good. Um, in the Cronenberg films, he did. He's just such a talented, talented guy. And I'm just glad that people are recognizing it the last few years. Especially because of the Batman yeah. now. Mm-hmm. But it, but what's also great about the casting of this film is 
uh, Ben Safdie, uh, Benny wasn't originally supposed to play this role. They were trying to cast it, and I believe the story goes that when they were they were going through the casting process, Benny was um, reading as uh, as Nick to other to other actors, I believe, and then they ended up just being like, you know, what? you're do- you're doing such a good job. Why don't you just play Nick? I believe they were trying to find actors for that role, and then eventually he settled on it. And man. Does he crush this role? I'm shocked he didn't get Oscar nominated for this for supporting actor because he really is remarkable as Nick. I love the film that it opens on just a close, a tight close up on on Nick, on Benny Safdie, and he's in that interview with the I think it's a, a therapist of some kind or a social worker possibly, but it's like a really tight close up. It's like it's framed like within. It's like it's in his face. Like it's you can't even see his chin or his hair. It's so tight. And the the film just opens with that holding on that for about a minute, and then and then Connie shows up and just ruins the entire interview and, and takes his brother away. I found that to be such a great way to start the film because you right away you get the emotional heartbeat of the film front and center, and that really is what allows the audience to connect to Connie because Connie, like Howard, is an extremely unlikable person. Yes, it's Robert Pattinson and everyone loves him, but the character is despicable in a lot of ways and extremely unlikable. So you need Nick in the film to really connect with Connie. Same thing with Howard. That's why casting is so important. Casting Adam Sandler was probably the only way the film would work because everyone loves Adam Sandler. Everyone loves him. He's one of the most likable, relatable actors in history. And because... Even though Howard is so just dislike is unlikable and just like a terrible human being, it's still Adam Sandler. So you can, there is a connection to him, and there is like in the subconscious like there's a love for him because it's Adam Sandler. Yeah, when Connie is trying to find his brother for the majority of the film, you're you're, you're connecting to him that way. Even though he's committing crimes, you're like he cares about his brother. He's trying to rescue his brother, and it's a a crazy shocker when. It doesn't end up being his Nick that he's rescued from police custody because there is great yeah, the, 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 the casts and everything all over his face. And um, what's his name? Buddy Duress was the actor who played that character. Ray. Uh, yeah, plays Ray. Buddy Duress actually is a criminal who has trouble staying out of jail despite being a really talented actor. He's, he's great, yeah. He spent a lot of time in jail the last like five or six years, but I believe he's uh, like out now and, and hoping to find work So more. I'm guessing that story he told is not much different from like his real life. It's actually, that's happened to him in terms of like jumping out of the t- a cab. That was the real life story. Like the great, fla- he has a great flashback. It's great, yeah. Where he tells Connie like everything that's happened to him in the last 24 hours, like he just got out of jail <laughs> and then he was back in jail in police custody. Yeah, after like he was doing acid within like two hours. Jumping out of a cabbie yeah. and it's a real story not I don't, I don't know how much of it in terms of was he in jail the night before but i know that the story of him jumping out of the cabbie and then like getting into an er was based on a real story of his in his past which is wild but by duress super talented actor he's terrific in this movie holding his own against robert pattinson but the guy he's had trouble with staying out of jail the last five years but he's out now i believe he's working on some other stuff and and in terms of like real people in real life playing uh, act playing roles that aren't actors, Peter Verby, he's actually the actor who plays the psychiatrist in the film who's yeah. helping. I've seen Nick. him in stuff. What is he? Who is he? Um, he's actually a criminal defense lawyer and represented uh, both Buddy Durrest in the Buddy Durrest in the past, and also represented Josh Safdie after shooting rap because Josh Safdie got arrested 
during production of the film because what he says was he was driving around in a shady car and police thought he was selling drugs out of. But uh-huh. he, he actually got arrested while they were making this what? movie. What? Really? And so Verby represented Josh Safdie after they wrapped production. Uh-huh. The thing is, like, you don't always need – you don't need an actor every time. And that's like – um, there's – I think the greatest cast – one of the greatest castings of a real-life person is in Captain Phillips – two Captain Phillips references in this episode. Who who would have thunk it? Sick reference, bro. Um, but when Phillips is rescued and he's brought down to the ER room of the boat and he is being worked on by the, the doctor there, um, the ER doctor – it's a real, real person. That woman was not an actor. She, that's her real profession. But the way she speaks to him is, it sell, it just feels real. You know, it feels the, like the way a medical professional would talk to someone. It's, they're not, it's not an actor acting, because they would act, they would act it. You know what I mean? She was talking to Tom Hanks the way she talks. She's talked to a thousand patients, and that really sells the scene when it's done the right way, especially if you're shooting minimalist handheld. Like Paul Greengrass likes to do, like the Safties mostly like to do, and when you're when you're shooting for realism, you're not using studio lighting. When you're using practical lighting, when you're using gritty film looks, and it doesn't have to look like it's a movie set. When you have a real person saying the words instead of an actor acting the words, sometimes that makes a world of difference and really makes it feel like that realism is hype is just like heightened. Some more similarities between these two films. Obviously, crime is a major part oh, of notice. both these movies. Creativity, highly creative films. Authenticity, that's a word we were using, throwing around a it's lot. It's a recently. word you've been throwing. You've been throwing around a lot. What was the episode? Scorsese. Was it the Scorsese? So in the Scor- I've been meaning to tell you. In the, so was in the it Scor- the Departed episode? No, no, Scorsese no. In the spotlight. In the Scorsese spotlight, because you were talking about the authenticity with the production design of his movies. Yeah. That's where it started. Ever since then... You've said authenticity like 10 times an episode. Like, not even kidding. You've said it already like five times. I'm just going to get a shirt made that says authenticity. Honestly, <laughs> we should make a drinking game out of it. <laughs> but, I mean, in terms of authenticity and something being unique, we've seen t- – there's 10,000 movies that are set in New York City. At least 10,000. But 10, this 000, one yeah. – these two Maybe <laughs> These two are so unique and memorable, and you're still thinking about them versus the average movie shot in New York City – you just forget about it as soon as you watch it, if you even finish watching that film. But I think that's one of the great strengths of these movies is they're so unique that you remember them. And obviously, New York City is a main setting. Both of these movies have very unhappy endings for our lead characters. <laughs> obviously, at the end of Good Time, Connie finally gets arrested. He's been on this spree, this crime spree. Like a Grand Theft Auto spree Insane. with less murder. The crimes he's been committing all night are absurd. And he finally meets his demise in terms of getting arrested for the original bank robbery, but also I'm sure they're going to put on a ton of extra charges for everything he's been up to that night, like breaking the security guard, the security guard breaking that guy out of police custody and in, in prison, uh, probably an accessory to um, not necessarily a murder, but when the character dies, I mean, I'm sure they can label something onto that. When Ray dies? Yeah, well, actually, it's accidental suicide. Yeah, he just, well, not accidental suicide, it's just, it's an accident. Yeah, it's an accident. Yeah. Oh, yeah, not an accidental suicide. Well, he accidentally killed himself. No, he didn't. He just accidentally died. He didn't accidentally. I mean, yeah, he, he died by his own hand, but it, it's not suicide. I yeah. don't think you could label it suicide. Yeah, it's not suicide. All right, right. Accidental death. He accidentally dies. Yeah. Actually, so except for that, it wouldn't be a crime that he's labeled to. But all these other crimes. But he finally he's got a lot of crime, Finally yeah. gets arrested. One of the best shots in the entire movie is when Connie's finally arrested and he's just got. Rob Penson has this great look on his face yeah. where he's just blank staring. Like, right, what? right, right. 
right off lens at us in the audience getting into the cab. It's like a minute shot held through the cage of Pattinson as Connie staring into what his life is about to become because all he was trying to do despite robbing a bank was trying to save his brother. And this has all happened to him ever since. And I, actually, I'm glad you pointed out that look because I think that's one of the best pieces of acting that Pattinson's ever done. Because the look on his face when he's arrested, it's the most – you can – it's just he's selling like the pit in his stomach. You know what I mean? This The the shock and then when I watch him in that scene, my stomach drops. You know what I mean? That feeling of like something terrible happening and you just feel that horrible feeling in your gut. He He projects that just with his face. And it's just such a brilliant – subtle piece of acting the way the way he slightly positions his face and and Pattinson is an extremely controlled actor he puts a lot of work into his craft I think people would be surprised obviously he's been the he was just Twilight guy for so long but he's so much more than that I think this is really one of the best subtle pieces of acting I've seen in a long time and every time I see it I get a pit in my stomach and that's just it's just brilliant acting and so few actors can do what he does. And there's a reason why Matt Reeves wrote the Batman for him. There's a reason why Bong Joon-ho chose him as the lead of his next movie. The reason, there's a reason why Chris Nolan cast him in the biggest movie he ever made. This guy, he's the real deal in so many ways. And he's, he's already on this just absolutely meteoric rise of just great filmmaking. And his ne the next 10 years of his career is just going to be insane i can't wait to see it it's gonna be all time yeah like he's he's positioning himself to be an all-timer for sure um oh the rover is another great one we forgot to mention that he's just fantastic in but the good time the reason why i like good time better uh than uncut gems is good time has a sensational first act like absolutely mind-boggling first act I think that the, the the second and third acts don't ultimately don't really live up to the first act completely. I think it just got a little too it kind of lost its momentum in a little bit of you know what I mean with the with the carnival area and stuff. I just I love it all, but I just kind of lost that momentum and that energy of the first act because he takes ban he takes Nick, they rob a bank, they take their they get in their driver's car. And then the pink mist sprays all over the place. And they're like, oh, shit, what the hell? And then they're running away. They escape the cops. Then they manage to change in that fast food joint in the bathroom. It's just chaos. And you're like, oh, my God, how are they going to get out of this? They're covered in pink paint. And then another uh, cop chase and Nick gets arrested. And then Connie's like, shit, what do I do? That's the first act. It's absolutely remarkable. The momentum is just like it propels you forward and you're just like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. I love I, the, the pink spray. When I saw this movie for the first time, I was like, oh, my God, they're fucked. It's just brilliant, brilliant writing. And the way that they uh, filmed it was just ri ridiculously so cool. And oh, my God, I love the first act. Ridiculously so cool. That's why I'd say Uncut Gems, its first act I love as well. But it doesn't have... The same, like, it doesn't have, like, that same strong, cohesive first act that Good Time has. But it has a great second and it, third so act. I think it has a, a better second half than Good Time's second half. But Good Time all around, I think, is just a much, is a, is a better film. I would argue also that, you know, people don't like to watch, maybe didn't like Uncut Gems, because the experience you have when watching both these films is obviously the extreme paranoia that you feel as well. 
But when you're watching Uncut Gems, there are multiple times where you think you're having a heart attack <laughs> and you're just like, you can't breathe anxiety. and you're feeling the intense anxiety that Howard's feeling. The, there's a sequence like a little halfway through the film. It's about five, six minutes long where everything is crashing in on this guy from every direction. The phones, it's the, door. the doors, it's everything. The, the doors won't open up and the, everything's going insanely off the rails. And from every different direction, security cameras, everyone's looking for him and trying to grab him. And then once it's over, you're just like, I can't breathe right now. Yeah, yeah. But it lasts like six minutes and it's intense. It's not easy to do. I found, I find Uncut Gems' most impressive qualities is both the editing and the sound design of the film. Uh, and, and that's a sequence in particular where uh, people are talking over each other. You can barely make out like wh who you should be listening to, but that's the whole point. You have all these voices going on, you have the sounds of, of things happening, uh, and the editing is really perfect, and it just creates this horrible feeling of anxiety, and it makes you feel what Howard's feeling. It's so incredible, and it's all editing and sound design and sound mixing, and the crew did a fantastic job with both those aspects of the film. Those, I think, are strengths that it has over good time, for in, sure. In addition to the music, which we'll get yeah. into a little bit after our intermission because the music for both of these films is sensational. Before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. We have different tiers, $2, $5, $10, $25 and $100 tier, $100 tier patrons, you get the ultimate perk in terms of getting a personal watch party, a private episode that you get to customize and request yourself as well as coming on the show after three months. But all the perks have great, all the tiers have great perks. So look into those. Also, be sure to get tickets to our first ever live show, which will be in Los Angeles on January 21st, 2023. That's a Saturday at noon Pacific time, we'll be performing in Los Angeles downtown. You can get tickets in person, or you can get live broadcast tickets and watch the show as it's happening around the world, wherever you are. Links to both those tickets, the live in person, as well as broadcast digital online experience tickets are accessible from the link in our Instagram bio. I'll put the links below in this episode as well on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. This episode is sponsored by our friends at MoviePosters.com. Use our special promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. MoviePosters.com has a huge selection of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable in their poster library. Everything from classic film to Marvel movies, sci-fi to indie dramas like these. They got you covered. They also have all sorts of sizes, framing, and even backlighting for your poster needs. The best place, of course, to get your posters is at MoviePosters.com. Don't forget to use our promo code Raiders10. It'll get you 10% off your order today. And big thank you to Black Magic Design. They sent us two of their cinema cameras, the brand new G2 6K pocket cinema cameras that we use to film the show. Now, these are incredibly accessible and affordable. If you're on a budget and you're an independent filmmaker or videographer, we cannot recommend Blackmagic Design enough. These will only run you a couple grand a piece. They're compatible with EF mount lenses, so if you already have some Canon lenses, they work perfectly with that, as well as other photography lenses or the really cool cinema lenses as well. Cinema cameras are the game changer the that your, your production might need, so we recommend going to blackmagicdesign.com and checking out their 
Pocket Cinema 6K G2 cameras. Thanks so much, Blackmagic. Yeah, and also DaVinci Resolve Studio is a terrific editing software I've fallen in love with. We edited the, Anthony edited the short film on it. Yeah, so let's get into the intermission, man. All right, let's go. You ready for the movie quote competition, Anthony? I'm ready. When you get to hell, John, <laughs> tell them Daisy sent you. <laughs> oh, wait, hold on. Wait, who's... Was... You think Constantine? Yeah. Like... <laughs> Shit. Let me say it again. When you get to hell, John, tell them Daisy sent you. Oh, it's um, Hateful Eight. Yeah. Yeah. Daisy Domergu. <laughs> I actually just watched it uh, last week. I watched the extended edition. She has very few quotes that aren't highly offensive to say on, <laughs> on, on, on air. <laughs> Surprised you found one. Because <laughs> it's the only time, because she, she's talking to like a white guy. Yeah. That, so she didn't say anything horrible. Yeah. Oh, my God. All right. Guess this quote. <clears throat> you know, we're sitting on four million pounds of fuel one nuclear weapon, and a thing that has 270,000 moving parts built by the lowest bidder. Makes you feel good, doesn't it? Huh. Can you say that one more time? Mm-hmm. You know, we're sitting on 4 million pounds of fuel, one nuclear weapon, and a thing that has 270,000 moving parts built by the lowest bidder. Makes you feel good, doesn't it? That's a really good quote. Thanks, man. I, I'm glad to hear so. Four million pounds, pounds of, fuel. of fuel. Is this a, an, a craft? Think about what would have that much fuel. What would have that much fuel? I mean, four million pounds of fuel. It's, oh. it's going to be like a, like a, like a battleship or a submarine or no, like the flying fuel. Like flying fuel. It's a, it's a spacecraft. It's going to be a <laughs> spacecraft. A huge spacecraft. <laughs> a, boat. a boat has four million pounds of fuel. I don't know. I've never been on a battleship. Have you ever been on a battleship? It seems like they, they got a lot on there. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it, I feel like it maybe maybe Independence Day. No, not Independence no, Day. No. I'll give you one more guess. Something. All right, let me let me think. You can't you can't drag this out. I'm it's already been a minute. I can drag out as much as I this want. This is my show too. I will drag this out for minutes, minutes on end as I stall trying to rack my tiny brain for this answer yeah he got the tiny one i don't know <laughs> armageddon armageddon <laughs> <laughs> so the the 270,000 uh moving parts is the oil drill gotcha a drill yeah gotcha good quote sick reference bro thanks bro. all right guess this movie release year the machinist 2004 2003 no Damn, I thought it was 04. You sure about that? I'm, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm, quite, I trust you. Quite positive. I trust you. Well, quite positive isn't isn't completely sure. Quite positive is... I'm very positive. You're very positive? Yes. I just got to double check. Machinist. 2004, motherfucker. <laughs> I was right. You were wrong. Whoops. <laughs> I knew it was 04. Whoops. See, I felt so strongly about that. I was like, there's no way he's, he's right. Even though... Yeah. Gotcha. Do your research next that time. That was all a bit. It was all a bit. <laughs> I knew it. Oh, I know Christian Bale way too too much to know that it was 04. <laughs> okay, here's this movie released here. Dazed and Confused. 19. 90. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Thanks. Good job. Thanks. Moving on to movie pop quiz time. What Showtime TV series did Jennifer Jason Lee appear in 16 episodes of 
which stars a suburban mother who sells drugs to her neighbors. Weeds. Nice. Thanks. I actually watched that show, yeah. so I know that. <laughs> Me and mom used to watch that together. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> okay, here's my quiz. Ben Affleck played Jack Ryan in what film? Hmm. And make sure you got to let people guess the answer as well, Anthony. Sorry, yeah, yeah. I just got so, so excited. I get so, so quick excited. over there. Quick draw, McGraw. Um, all right, Ben Affleck is Jack Ryan. I'll give you a hint. Morgan Freeman is yeah, also yeah, in. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's the submarine one. Nope, that's Alec Baldwin. That's Alec Baldwin's. <laughs> 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 that's uh, the hunt for Red the, October. The, the word time is in it. <laughs> no. The word <laughs> the autumn. One. The word autumn is in it. <laughs> autumn and a Jack Ryan. Yeah, why not? Story. Autumn Rising. That sounds like a Jack Ryan movie. <laughs> it does, it does not. It does not. I know this man. I know this. <laughs> Just let me work the case. Here we go. With this stalling. I got. I got the other one. This is the longest intermission we've ever done. <laughs> you hey, didn't you, get the other one. You got somewhere to you be. You did not get the no, other I one. No, I got the 1993 right. Yeah, but you didn't get the other one. Well, that was the other one I'm yeah. talking about. <laughs> Listen, you're distracting me. I'm trying to. I'm trying to get the gears working here. All right, Ben Affleck is a uh, Jack Ryan in. I can. I can see the poster. That's it. I can see the goddamn poster. Oh yeah. There's a little red on it. There's a little red. Yeah. On there's it. a little yeah. red on it. Yeah. There's a radar in there. In the movie, there's a radar. <laughs> <laughs> you're still thinking of the fucking submarine one. No, no, no. There's a. There's By the a... way, that's a really good one. Yeah. It's awesome. hunt, for, hunt for October. Um, it's so awesome that James thought it was this one. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> I never said that. You brought Humphrey October. All I said was Autumn Rising. <laughs> you said the submarine one. <laughs> There's got to be a submarine in this. There's none. It's a Tom Clancy movie. Come on. Um, oh, God damn it. Freaking, I don't know. The sum of all fears. Knew it. <laughs> I'm, you don't seem too beat up about it. All right. Um, well, that was, that, glad that's over. What do, we, what do we got for haters this week, pal? <laughs> We actually had a good hater on on uh, YouTube. Oh, tell me that hater. I have some right here too. So, um, you've seen that I, I put it in the story is pretty funny. Oh yeah. The so burn. someone it was on Movie News Fifty One, which was posted six months ago. <laughs> it's an old. It's an old Movie News episode. This person just f- freshly watched it. It's almost a year old. Yeah. He and he wrote lasted five minutes. Holy Wayne and Garth. Except Wayne and Garth were funnier and brighter. <laughs> I replied, congrats. You lasted four minutes and 50, sec- 50 seconds longer than when you... <laughs> you ruined your own joke. Congrats. You lasted four minutes and 50 seconds longer than with your wife. <laughs> this is good. But look what kind of person writes that. Burn. We're not Wayne and Garth. And also, I'm sorry we're not the comedic geniuses of Dana Carvey <laughs> and Mike Myers. My goodness. Also, I mean, we're just talking about the news. Yeah, we're just talking about <laughs> <laughs> it's a movie news episode. I mean, we what, are you, what are you expecting? What we do with those episodes, if you've never watched them, I'm sure you all listening have, we list off all the biggest topics in the entertainment news for TV and we're film. We're just reading the news. And react. Like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, bro. <laughs> what else do you want us to say? Here's the new trailer. Do you want us to, like, I don't know. What else do you want? We're not funny enough, and we're, we're a couple of boneheads. We're not bright enough. Not good enough for me. Neckbeard. No one's blonde either. It's just yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know who's Garth and you're. Whoever was wearing glasses, I guess. You're wear you wear glasses. Quite a bit. See, the thing is, I wear glasses 
constantly outside of the podcast, but on the podcast I don't because they hurt my ears when I wear them with the headphones on. I'm sorry to hear that, I, Anthony. It's, it, it, it hurts it, his ears, everybody. <laughs> well, not my ears, like right on my right behind the ears, the, the side of my head. It's, yeah, it, it pushes it pushes them into my ears. It's really hard. It's because of the headphones. It's the headphones, man. <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> Thank God. Oh, my, but you wear glasses on the podcast. It hurts my it hurts my ears. But, it you hurts know, my ears. Be a man. <laughs> Our brother got me the be a man book. I love it. It's so funny. <laughs> that guy on Instagram. Yeah, he's be great. a man. <laughs> so funny. All right, now to the unsubscribes. Our buddy George Carmi, movies and stuff. Fourteen. He wrote. Uh, you made an Instagram post today because we um so for our, our last onion episode, there's something crazy happening with our audio. It sounds fine, but then when we uploaded it. Both on to Anchor and Spotify, there was an issue where you couldn't hear James's voice, but you could hear my voice. But only some listeners, not yeah. all. It was so odd. My, some people my... could hear everything fine. Some yeah. people, when they played the episode, specifically on Apple Podcasts, they couldn't hear my voice. Yeah. And what happened is we got this new audio mixer interface thing that records the audio for us. This thing. <laughs> yeah, whatever, man. And that's the first time we used it, so that's obviously the problem. But it was so odd. Because your audio wasn't showing up at, like, it was, like, so tiny, you could barely hear it. But, but only some people. Yeah. And then I posted, I so then I did what I always do, and I made TikTok clips from the episode. And on my end, it sounded fine. And on my phone, it sounded totally fine. But when I posted a clip on TikTok, the audio for you... Just sounded like this. <laughs> yeah. I, I showed you, I'm like, dude, this TikTok clip is messed up. Yeah, so because so I, I posted the clip, and then like an hour later, I checked because I, I like to like give it a couple hours, and then I'll reply to all the comments rather than just like every time we get a comment, reply to it because I don't have time for that. So I like to just you know wait a couple hours and like okay, I'll reply to all these comments and like them all. And I went on the clip, and it had. 40 comments are saying audio is messed up audio is messed up audio let's we'll start with the audio and i was like what so you post the same one on yeah. instagram reels yeah. and it was fine yeah it's, but instagram, well, well instagram reels a couple people had the problem too uh-huh. but, but so, not everyone but so the thing is when i uploaded it and when i watched the clip on tiktok when i watched it on my phone it sounded fine but for everyone else your voice was literally like <laughs> <laughs> but it's not everyone. Again, it's like half the people it's they so heard that odd. half the yeah. people heard it fine. I don't understand what happened. Me neither. It makes no sense because it's not – I wouldn't upload a clip if it sounded like that. You know and, what I mean? And obviously, you edited Knives Out. Yeah. So I was like – my first reaction when we got messages about it, I'm like, there's no way Anthony edited this episode and it like sounded terrible. Yeah. He's, <laughs> it's not like he was like, yeah, this sounds fine. Export. <laughs> sounds good to me. <laughs> James sounds like it, you can barely hear him. Perfect. <laughs> That's how I prefer it anyways. It's, it's improved. <laughs> Anyways, back so, to George. Yeah, so it was just a weird thing with the audio. Um, we've, we've reverted back to our old style for today. So George Carmi wrote, audio issues, unsubscribed. His, his first unsubscribe. <laughs> yeah, he said he's been, uh, he's always wanted to join in and say that. So he, he took advantage of it. <laughs> Thanks, pal. And then uh, John Paul Roman wrote uh, about our, the news about the Anna de Armas lawsuit for the film yesterday. He wrote, due to simping for the movie studios in the Anna de Armas uns- lawsuit, unsubscribed <laughs> and then landon adams wrote um the avatar thumbnail that thumbnail will haunt me forever thanks guys unsubscribed <laughs> where you gave us blue face dude, that is a great you, you made us navi with the ears the and everything ears, dude like I, it the took ear, me like a you, half hour you, but i you even got like our necks though like in the the eyes the yellow eyes that's the creepiest part that is, is messed with me too if man the layered is i erased our eyes and i put navi New, eyes oh, behind okay. us so like if you took the you navi didn't eyes, color the eyes no no just, 
like their actual Navi eyes. <laughs> so if you took that layer out on Photoshop, it would just have hollow Empty. eyes. <laughs> It'd be like, um, what's that? There's a movie where someone cuts out the eyes of people's faces. Jeepers Creepers. Yes, Jeepers Creepers. No, no, no. In the magazines. Oh. Um, something. I can't, something, something. I can't remember. Maniac? No. Maybe one hour photo or something. Something. I'll think of it. And then Gracie, Gracie Olivia wrote, not a single mention of how talented and beautiful Jamie Flatters is. Unforgivable. Unsubscribe. Sorry, Gracie. But uh, that's it for our unsubscribes. Very funny this week. Yeah, it was, it was good. Sorry again about the Glass Onion episode. We replaced the file. So it should be okay now. But, but man, it's just so weird it's, that it's even the TikTok odd. clip got messed up. It yeah, doesn't so make any sense. We're going to run me. some tests and figure it out. We promise it won't happen again. Now, how about a great... Actually, no new five star reviews. So you guys, you guys got to step your game up. Come on, those are some rookie numbers. Get those five star reviews. Pump those up. numbers up. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Fugazi. You don't have to. Fugazi. We appreciate it though. Um, on this day in film history, today, but also if you're a Spotify user, just give us a like the five star rating is great. Yeah, that's super. That helps for as well us. too. Yeah. Now on this day in film history, today's January second, and nothing important happened today. <laughs> that's it. Like this, yeah, nothing comes out in January. Nothing to talk about at all. It's where movies go to die. It's it's literally. I looked it up. I'm like nothing. Yeah. There's like five movies that were released on this date, and they're not worth bringing up. But my streaming recommendation is The Menu, which just got added to HBO Max for January 2023. And welcome. This is our first episode. What's on HBO Max? Yeah. Man, I feel like we just saw it in theaters. Yeah, they, they, That's crazy. they put them out there fast now, dude. Wow. They're like within a month. Not even for rental. So, again, this is our but this is our first episode of 2023. Oh, Not yeah. kind of movie news yesterday, yeah. but this is like the first first twenty twenty three episode. Oh. We thought we'd do something strong with the uh, Safety Brothers. Start strong. <laughs> My recommendation is <laughs> that was a funny punching motion. And he went start strong and like punched his his like old timey boxing fists, <laughs> like how they fight in gangs in New York. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Leo's just like in the bar. <laughs> I love that. And my streaming recommendation is a movie I watched on Christmas night. It's one of the best Christmas movies ever. Eyes wide shut. Stanley Kubrick's last film with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Amazing movie. And Sidney Pollack, uh, who does a great job acting, even though he's a phenomenal director too. Um, love the movie. There's really nothing like it, and it's just absurdly good. And It's one of the craziest films ever made, but I love Kubrick movies so much. And, man, it's awesome. What's he say? Uh, I think that, that pot's making you act weird. or It's making you aggressive. Making you aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get back into our Safety Brothers episode on Good Time and Uncut Gems. I brought that. Well, I want to talk about the music, but real quick, I want to talk about how I, I, we brought up Unhappy Endings with Good Time for that lead character. Now the lead character of Uncut Joms has a very unhappy ending, although he may not have realized it. He died happy. He died with a smile on his face because yeah. he Howard finally won. He finally hit big. This is what he's been trying to do his entire life. This gambling act finally hit big. Put all the money he had, $165,000, on this parlay bet for this game. Now to explain that bet real quick, it's pretty much the same thing that he picked on the previous bet that got pulled. So he's betting on the Celtics Sixers basketball game, which was a real game that they just used for the film, and it just worked with the story. Yeah, so how, it, Carnet, how good Carnet played. It's actually the Celtics versus Sixers at the last game of Game Seven of the 2012 NBA Eastern Conference Semifinals, which took place on May 26, 2012. Now the bet that Howard made at the end of the film is Celtics to win that night's opening tip-off at the beginning of the game. 
Garnett to have at least a combined 26 points and rebounds, and the Celtics to win. And for anyone who doesn't know, this is a parlay bet, meaning that he has to win every single part of the bet in order to win. And because he bet $165,000 on this parlay bet, it would have paid out over $1.2 million, which Julia gets at the end of the film. Although, even though Howard won and finally hit big, he gets shot in the face right at the end of the movie, which is shocking. Yeah. The first time I saw this when we were watching it in theaters, it blew my mind. Yeah, it was really disturbing. And then also when Arnold got shot, because I think Phil, the actor, Keith William Richards, did a fantastic job. Phil, he is like, he feels like he's he's like a real a real fucking gangster. You know what I mean? Like he's like an he's like an Irish street guy. And the actor, I'm sure that's what it's like, how he really talks in his real personality. He seems like a guy you don't want to mess with. And he hints at his uh, ability to kill someone a couple of times in the film. And most other people, you hear them say these things, and you're like, oh, they're just, they're just talking shit. But with him, there's like, there's something behind his eyes that you're like, you feel like he really means it. Like and, that look he's constantly yeah. giving Howard when yeah. they're stuck inside the, the foyer yeah. of the of the locker he room. He was going to do that once he got out. His he I think he had his mindset on it immediately, like, I'm going to kill this guy once he lets me out. And then, but what's even shocking is these two guys, they work for Arno, and then Phil is just such a, he's just a real bad dude, like on a different level from anyone else we've seen in the film that he, he just easily kills Howard. And then he, without even thinking, he kills the guy he works for. And then it turns into a robbery of the jewelry store. Uh, Phil ended up becoming just like a terrible, like terrible human being and like a villain at the end of the film that really worked. And also it's like, because... You gotta think about it, like the criminal underworld and the people that Howard sets off and the people that Howard pisses off. He's gonna, you're gonna come, ac- come, ac- you're gonna come across a wild card every once in a while in that kind of place, in that kind of world, in that kind of community. And the wild cards are the people you want, you want to look out for. Like for example, like there are people out there where if you set them off, they won't hesitate to kill you. They're out there. They, they exist, and Phil is one of them. And I think it was a brilliant character to put in the movie. Yeah, especially because Howard's going to face up to the consequences of his actions at some point. He hasn't hit the full ramifications of that. His marriage is falling apart. That's a consequence of his actions. His kids don't connect with him anymore. One of his kids finds out that he's been cheating on his mother when he goes to the apartment and doesn't let him inside of it. And the guy tells him about that hot girl that's living in the apartment. He's destroyed his relationship with Gooey because he had him put $180,000 on the Opal, which he told him he this would happen. I, I told you this would happen. Um, he's ruined his relationship, obviously, with his brother-in-law by taking so many loans out with him, but as well as the people in his community because he takes so many loans out all over the place. But this is the f- the biggest consequence of his actions, which you can argue is probably inevitable in his life. And even if, even if he didn't get shot here, even if he got that $1.2 million, his life would have ended up in this way eventually. He would have spent all that money within a year. He would be right where his back is. He would have used all that money probably, just wasted it on vacations with Julia, and then put it all into gambling and lose it all and get probably even deeper in a hole. Yeah, that's why I said earlier that he it was inevitable that his life would end like this no matter what because that's just who the character is. He probably would have won big here and then would have bet it all on something else to make, oh, I can win $10 million. It's never enough for a person like this. Whatever they win, whatever they get, they're never satisfied. They always they always need the next big fix, uh, and they have an insatiable appetite for winning and for success. And that's why it was inevitable for Howard to eventually die in some capacity like this. 
I love the music to both of these films too. It's just highly experimental, very emotional and energetic. Lots of cool sounds. We're hearing like experimental sounds, like electronic sounds. You're hearing electric guitar solos and like piano, keyboard, electronics, guitar solos. Just they're all over the place with the. But with then the, you hear flute. It's and really woodwinds. Yeah, and chorus yeah. even. And so it was done by um, One Tricks Point Never, who is that's their uh, stage name, and it's actually Daniel. Lopatin. He did both Good Time and Uncut Gems. Lopatin had previously contributed scoring work on Sofia Coppola's The Bling Ring in collaboration with Brian Reitzel and Ariel Kleiman's 2015 film Partisan. He became interested in working with the Safdie brothers when they approached him as the composer and musician for their for these films because they're a big fan of his track called Behind the Bank, and they sent him a mood board and he got really interested in it. Josh Safdie, who works closely with Lopatin and specifically on the score for Uncut Gems, which, according to Safdie, began with a Frankenstein score using library and New Age music before Lopatin began sketching out compositions. Safdie described the soundtrack as a medicinal, a medicinal New Age soul of a film in contrast to the pulse of their previous collaboration on Good Time. It's more ethereal, more orchestral, and it's a little goofier. A major difference between these films, for me, is... Uncut Gems feels kind of magical or mystical. It's got that quality, you know, that great opening with this mine in South Africa or Ethiopia. Well, they filmed in South Africa, but in Ethiopia, according to the movie. And they get that opal, and the film then travels through the opal, and then we're in this galaxy, this universe inside the opal, and then we're cutting or we're inside of Howard's colon. <laughs> It's really interesting, weird way to start a movie. But then that film ends going into Howard's face and through the opal again, and then to the universe and the cosmos. Well, so at, the ending is not, you don't go back into the opal. They they go into the cellular level. And then it looks similar to the opal. That was the level. whole point where it's just, we're, okay, made so up, the same thing. we're made up of minerals, we're made up of molecules, and it's not cosmic dust. And it's not much different from the opal. And then it ends up being cosmic dust. That's the whole point. So the in, the the, me the molecular structure of a, a mineral of a stone is not much different from the molecular structure of a human being. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a good point. Yeah. Also, I think it's in matter in general, but it's yeah. probably just a really great <laughs> metaphor and comparison of the opal to a human life. Mm -hmm. Are they worth the same thing? Are they both that valuable and rare? Well, is, yeah. Is it that precious? Are both yeah. so precious that one's you know tens, hundreds of thousands of years old and worth so much money? And one is just, it seems, you know, there's 7 billion people on the planet Earth. Are human being, human lives as important or rare as this opal? Probably, the well, probability of life. Well, they do a great supercut of the opal cut together with just, like, literally a supercut of frames of Kevin Garnett. Various frames of Kevin Garnett because he wants to buy it. And then cut with uh, the miners and people suffering to mine in uh, different African countries. Uh, really great. Little supercut, about thirty seconds long. No, not even like ten seconds long, where you can see just like this spray of images uh, relating to the idea of minerals. And I mean, where do minerals start? They're mined generally. Like these precious minerals are all mined by hand by unfortunate people who live highly sufferable lives with uh, in poverty. And and then these minerals are sold for thousands and even millions of dollars in in the Western world. So. I thought it was a great cut they did in that. And there's more creativity in the filmmaking of this than it is in Good Time, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. But also, let's talk about the supporting cast. So Good Time, 
<clears throat> excuse me, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee, obviously as Corey Elliman, who is Connie's, you know, supposed girlfriend, but really just uses her for money whenever he needs it. Buddy Duress, who we talked about as well as Ray Talia Webster, she plays Crystal. It is an unorthodox and uncomfortable situation when you know Connie is yeah. intimately being involved with this teenager. We never what, does she say her age? She says she's, she's like 16. sixteen in yeah. the movie. The actor. Uh, the actress Talia, she's actually was 19 when they filmed it, mm-hmm. but still, it's just uncomfortable sometimes when you're watching that. But that it, sequence. It's the, that's the character of Connie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not they're not promoting it. That's how messed up yeah. Connie is. He's a bad guy. Yeah, Barkad Abdi again, tremendous in this film as the security guard at the amusement park, and then again swapping out Eric Roberts with real bondsmen and just having non-actors in a lot of roles. And then Uncut Gems, we have a larger cast and definitely some more talent added. In addition, we have Julia Fox as Julia De Fiore. Adina Menzel plays Dina Ratner. She's terrific as Howard's wife in this film. Lakeith Stanfield is incredible in this film as Damani. And I, I think this one... After I saw him in Get Out and we saw him in this, I was just like, this guy is tremendous. Sorry to bother you, too. Yeah, he's great, and that came out, I think, 2017 as well. Uh, Keith William Richards, which we brought up as well. Tommy Kominick. And then some other cast members. We have Paloma. Well, The weekend's in it. Yeah, The weekend. yeah. Yeah, and it was. It, I like how they dated the film. Exactly. So, so, so it opens with uh, 2012 New York City, uh, the title, and during the colonoscopy. But then also they date it with, uh, it's a record release album r- album party for The weekend with, his, I think, his second album. If I remember that song, I think it's on his second album that he sings. Uh, and you see his old hairstyle, and he performs in in that club. I love that because it makes it feel like, oh, it's not just a title card we saw. We're seeing a famous artist while they were coming up, rising into fame, still kind of underground at that time of his career. And to see a, a record re- release party for him, it makes you really feel like, oh, this is 2012. It's the it's really the weekend playing yeah. the weekend. And then we also have Kevin Garnett playing Kevin Garnett. When he was on the Celtics. When this yeah. was all happening, they needed to find an active player at the time and year that this movie was set in. So that was a great option. Originally, they wanted Amari Stoudemire because he was active at the time as well. But I think it just added so much more depth to have the KG, Celtics. KG did great. He's tremendous. He did a very good job. I was shocked. Really terrific. But that those two things in setting the, in dating the movie, what's it add? Authenticity. Authenticity. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna have to make a shirt out of this. <laughs> to uh, Tilda Swinton actually has a cameo in this movie. What? She plays the auction manager. She's on the phone with Howard when he shows up and he gets in the. That's the, Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton's voice. Oh my god! Pretty great. Uh, Judd Hirsch. He plays Gooey in this movie. He was just in the Fablemans. He's an Oscar named. He's great. Actor yeah, as well. I love him. Yeah, he's he's terrific in that. He movie. was in Independence Day. Speaking of Independence Day, oh, yeah. he plays Jeff Goldblum's dad. <laughs> <laughs> he's just always looked really old. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he looked. Older than that, yeah. Doc Rivers, the Celtics head coach, actually has a voice. Was that real vo- I wasn't a- sure if they got an actor to, that sounded like him because in the locker room they don't show him, but KG's holding the opal and like rubbing it. But you hear Doc's voice in the in the background, I'm like this. This sounds too good for it to be like an actual recording of Doc Rivers. So it's Doc Rivers. He did the recording for the movie, and he based the speech that he gave off a real speech he gave to the Clippers when he was coaching them more recently. Uh-huh. Um, Love that. Some other, yeah. So the cast, I think, are just really terrific because great supporting cast. Also, John Amos, he plays neighbor um, three, neighbor, the neighbor in three F. He's obviously from uh, Good Times, Die Hard two, Coming to America, and th- I think um, Howard makes a reference to him saying that he's a legend. When is yeah, yeah? They knock on his door for his son to use the bathroom. He's like, no, nah. hell no. <laughs> so he's a that's a great cameo for him as well. I will say, I would say. 
the best supporting actor of both films has got to be Benny Safdie. He did. He really did a remarkable job. And uh, like I said, the film opens with him and the film ends with him. It's a bookend of Nick, of him in the interview with the psychiatrist and then him entering the program uh, with the other people who are being uh, assisted and helped and, and cared for. Yeah, he's finally entered the program that he was probably interviewing for in the first uh, scene of the film. So the movie's bookended by Nick, whereas uh, uh, Uncut Gems is bookended by um, the, the the molecular structures of the gem and then the human body. Nick's a really tragic character. You know, we, we immediately learn who Nick is and get the great introduction from Connie as well. And we, we know their relationship and obviously they're brothers. But we get great, great characterizations because Nick is a mentally handicapped person and he's, you know, you can tell how how tough it, might, it must be for him to go through this interview and these questions and, you know, he's not giving great answers in his perspective and, and he's, Safety sheds a, a tragic tear in the first minute of the movie. Yeah, it's so it's hard great. to watch and you feel nothing but empathy for this poor, this poor guy, Nick. And then his brother comes into the picture, takes him out of there. How would you feel if I made you cry right now? Like, tear that shit up. Tear that shit up. And so then gets him arrested. And Connie, I mean, Nick is just a really a victim to his brothers doing this entire film. Gets arrested, gets beat up in prison. He's not meant to be in a jail, in a prison, because he, he d doesn't really know how to interact with other people because he needs to be assisted in his day-to-day -day life. He, yeah. He's not meant to be somewhere that's, like that. That's actually a great point because Connie treats him as though... He doesn't need help. And Connie treats him as though, oh, I can take care of him. He's fine. He can do whatever. But Nick, he needs assistance and he, he needs help in life. He can't he can't live a normal life. He can't lead a normal life. And so he needs to enter a program like this. But Connie, I think he has an amount great amount of stubbornness and uh, selfishness to think that he can solve Nick's problems, which he clearly is incapable of because he can't even solve his own problems and because he is a criminal. So Connie... Is just so reckless, so irresponsible. Uh, he has absolute tunnel vision. I think the greatest instance of tunnel vision is when they're running from the cops, and he basically just keeps sprinting. He yells, he yells for Nick to catch up, but like Nick lost him minutes ago. Like there's no way Nick's gonna catch up to him. And so Connie, in a way, I think kind of back of his head, kind of abandons Nick in a way. He's very stubborn. Yeah, you know, he, he thinks he can be just like him. But Connie, I mean, Nick needs help. I mean, that's clearly shown when he runs through the glass door. It's clearly shown in the prison when he doesn't really understand the social cues that are happening and how if he keeps pressing people in this jail, he's going to get his ass kicked, which he does. He gets sent to the emergency room. That's where Nick thinks he's, tra he's, he's in custody at that hospital and tries to break him out and ends up being Ray. But what a Nick, what a great twist! I know, but Nick. Yeah. But the, what I love about this film is we don't see what happened to Nick. We just know he went to a hospital after he gets beat up in prison, and then we don't see him till the end of the film, really, where he's with his grandmother and he's back with the psychiatrist, and he's finally entering this program where he can actually get help and and ha actually grow as a person and try to socialize and try to move on with his life without Connie holding him back. Yeah. Where Connie probably thinks that Nick is holding him back. Connie's really holding Nick back from the kind of person that he really can be. And it's such a powerful ending to the film where he's in this class and you can tell Nick doesn't really want to be here immediately. But then he finally accepts who he is and accepts where he's meant to be and how he really needs to be in this program with these people. And he starts to cross the paths and starts to uh, be a part of the game. Do and, the activity. Yeah. yeah. And, and the credits are rolling while this is happening. It's really powerful. It's really emotional. And Safty is terrific. And this is where their documentary background really works because that final shot, it feels 
it almost feels like it's just being filmed by a documentary crew. You know what I mean? Yeah. In a lot of ways. Like and the it, shots from outside the door. And, and Benny even doesn't even feel like he's an actor in that moment. You know what I mean? But what also really works in how you say that we don't see Nick again until after Connie's demise, not demise, but arrest and um, ended up. Uh, the reason is that film, both the films for the most part are real time stories. Uh, it's good time more so where, you know, it, the movie it's basically takes place over the course of several hours. Uncut Gems is kind of like that, but in in chunks. Like you get a you get one six hour chunk, then you get like another six hour chunk. Um, so Good Time essentially it more, more so is a real time film. Uncut Gems is is a real time film uh, in a couple of increments. But with both films, they take place over a very short amount of time, at the most a couple of days, and that's a strength to. The pacing and the rhythm that they create with their story and also the stakes then the, the time so both films also have the the time conflict where for for connie he needs to find his brother and then he needs to figure out how to get out of the uh, um the being pursued by the police and getting his brother back and trying to get out of town while also trying while to score also trying to score he needs money and then he only has a short amount of time to be able to find this money somehow. And then for Howard, he only has a short amount of time to get the money he needs or else he's dead. And the time factor is a really great thematic element to add a lot of pressure onto your character, to add a lot of stakes into the story, and to really propel conflict and make it build. Because the closer you get to the end of that time limit, the more suspense, the more conflict... And the more thrills and anxiety the audience feels along with the characters of the film. I really love the one night quality, one day, 24 hour yeah. period quality to good time where uncut's pretty close to that. It's, it seems like a couple days, mm -hmm. maybe two days, three days. But the one day timeline of good time really sells the movie so well. And they, they really wrote it. You terrific. feel it. Yeah. You feel it. Um, you got any more to talk about? I got some cool fun facts. Well, I, I just, I mean, I really love the Safdie's filmmaking style because like I said, if you haven't seen any films from the Dardenne's brothers, they, um, they made their, their careers based upon, um, lower class uh, characters, handheld cinematography. Um, sometimes they're criminals. Sometimes they're just trying to get by. Um, but their films are very minimalist in their approach to filmmaking. They also have a documentary background before they started making narrative films. They're a couple of my, they're some of my favorite filmmakers and really were very inspiring to me when I was getting into film. But when I watched the Safdie brothers, I think for American filmmakers, they're the, the closest thing I've seen to the Dardenne's brothers. Uh, and even the Dardenne's, they generally avoid stars, but they, they cast Marion Cotillard in one of their films recently, uh, The Kid with a Bike. And, I mean, the Two Days, One Night, which is really brilliant. Uh, and also... What they do is uh, they have uh, characters wear red in some way on their clothing. And so all the characters in this, in uh, Dardenne's movie will have either a red shirt or like a jacket with a red, red stripe or some kind of tone of red on the character's wardrobe. And then the Safties, I mean, this is, I haven't seen this in any interviews or anything, but I guarantee, I guarantee... Can I guess what you're going to say? That the Echo Unlimited shirt is... In, but that's worn by um, Connie was inspired by the Dardens always having their characters wear red. It does wear a lot of red in that movie, yeah, right? Yeah, so the red, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, I'd bet a thousand dollars that it's a reference and a homage to the Dardens brothers, him, Connie, wearing red in that movie. That's a great point. 
Um, some cool facts I have on Good Time. How about we start with the meaning of the title Good Time is prison slang. It refers to reduction in a prisoner's sentence for good behavior. According to the Safety ah. brothers, the backstory is that Connie behaved well in prison, got released on his good time, and that is how he's and this is how he spends it. Buddy Duress's character Ray as well. People refer to it as jail refer to it in jail as their good time, but when they leave, there are such strict rules and opportunities to get caught up. And they actually got this information from Buddy Duress explained this to them that what good time means. That's funny. He said to him like they wanted to work with him on a, on a movie because I think they did a short with him, and he, they're like, yeah. He's like, yeah, I can get out. I'm gonna get out on good time soon. And he explained to him what good time means. Mm-hmm. Also, Love how that. about we discuss what happened to Robert Pattinson's hair in, in Good Time? <laughs> so in the film, he starts off with dark hair with that goatee, and then halfway through the film, he bleaches his hair when he's at that apartment. And so they actually had to bleach it, then make it black again, then bleach again, make it black again a few times because films are seen film scenes films are filmed out of order. Yeah, and they yeah. actually had to reshoot some stuff. Like I said earlier, they had to reshoot the whole Bondsman scene, so they probably had to do it for this. And during production of Good Time, Rob Pattinson's hair started to fall out in chunks due to the many times they had to bleach it. So after dyeing it to black first to make him more like Benny Safdie's brother. They peroxided it to be blonde and had to bleach it back and forth several times oh my until God. they got all the sequences done. By the time the film had wrapped, they just shaved it all off because it was falling out. <laughs> That's where they got that great uh, mug shot of Pattinson's character, Connie. Oh, okay. Was at, after they wrapped production, yeah. they shaved his head and took, and took a photo, that photo of him. Isn't that – that's how Eminem dyed his hair, right? With hydrogen peroxide? I'm not sure. He says that Maybe. in a – I think he says that in a rap Maybe. lyric. Yeah. I'm not sure. Let's see. Also, unsatisfied with the look of rental fake movie money and needing lots of it for the bank robbery scene, the Safety brothers tasked their prop department with making their own cash, fake cash. According to Josh Safty, part of the production office became a counterfeiting mill. This one guy, he literally didn't say a word to anyone. He just sat there cutting money all day long. At one point, Robert Pattinson, who'd regularly went in and out of character and costume throughout the production, accidentally used the counterfeit bills to buy a pack of cigarettes. We got some good fake prop money on Amazon. Yeah, pretty solid. It looks good. It looks pretty good. How about some uncut gems fun facts? Let's hear it. So we got those cameos in earlier. Now, okay, so the the film was originally supposed to take place in the present day, so 2019-ish, with NBA star Joel Embiid playing the role of the basketball player obsessed with the Black Opal. When filming for the movie was moved to the fall during the NBA season, using an active NBA player became out of the question because they are too damn busy. So then they set it to 2012. I like the the period piece setting. Also, another great uh, casting of a non-actor, Mike Francesa. He plays Gary, who Howard makes the bets with. He's the most successful and one of the most popular sports radio hosts in America. Really? New York City-based. But uh, he's excellent in this movie. Yeah, he's great. But yeah, he's he's been a... He, just, he feels like a real bookie, you know? Yeah, he does. Uh, the word fuck is used 560 times, the fourth highest in film history after swearing at the movie, uh, The Wolf of Wall Street, and Goodfellas fuck the documentary. Uh. Based on the film's running time of 135 minutes, the word appears an average of 4.15 times per minute in uncut gems. It's a lot. Final bit of... No, two final bits. So Adam Sandler's base salary for acting in a movie is usually $20 million. The film's entire budget was $19 million. And finally, Jonah Hill was originally considered for the role of Howard Ratner and he even wanted to work with the Safdie brothers for a long time, but he left the film due to his young age not being able to do to, to youth the character down. Instead, he was replaced by Adam Sandler, who at first turned down the role, 
twice and finally accepted it. How about actually? I think Jonah Hill could have pulled it off. Yeah, probably. I he think he seems a little too young though. Yeah. I think that's the problem. To have a family. Yeah. I actually have now he could do it. I have a back... I have a question about the gem. Do you think the gem? I mean the opal. Do you think it has power? Do you think its power is giving its possessor the ability to win? What do, What do you think? Do you think the, the opal has power? Because both KG and Howard win. No, it's just uh, it's Michael's. It's like Michael's drink in Space Jam. It gives you supreme confidence. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Because it gives KG the confidence to play well. Mike's secret sauce? Yeah, Mike, Yeah, whatever it is. I can't remember what he calls it. Like Mike, Mike's secret drink. Secret stuff? Yeah, secret, secret stuff. stuff. Yeah. I think it's the same thing. It's just placebo effect. I don't know. I think there's some magic. Well, yeah. If you I think, think so. there's some magic, yeah. man. I like that opal. But anyways, that's all I got for fun facts for Good Time and Uncut Gems. I love both these films. And they just announced that they are in pre-production on their next film. And Adam Sandler will be starring again. And uh, I saw an interview with someone asked him what the character was like. And... Adam Sandler said he has them. The look for the character is not very flattering for him. <laughs> he, he said, I don't look good. <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> so I'm really curious now. All right. Thanks for tuning in to our episode on Good Time and Uncut Gems. Be sure to become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Get tickets to the live show. Digital experience tickets broadcast around the world from moment.co slash Raiders of the Lost or get live in-person tickets from DynastyTypewriter.com. Again, these links will be in the bios of our Instagram, social media accounts, as well as the episodes of the show. Take care, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast was executive produced by our Chosen One patrons, Luke Exelston, Tyler McFly, Darren Singleton, Anthony DeMeo, Becca Keen, Cody Moen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Cam, and Chandler Johnson. Thank you so much for supporting our show. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button, hit the like button as well, notifications for sure. Listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere you can listen to podcasts, and be sure to check out this other content we have on our YouTube channel. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.